about to spend the better part of two months talking about love and human relationships. We'll be digging into a book that details the sexual awakening of a young couple. Hardly appropriate for a Sunday morning, is it? Well, we disagree. Songs is a book of love in a world created by a God of love. When it comes to the message of human love, the church has lost her voice. We've stayed quiet and the world has monopolized the message. If we don't talk about it here, then where? If we don't talk about it now, then when? The world isn't silent on human love. The Bible isn't silent on human love. So we will not be silent either. Amen. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Central. If you're a guest of ours, my name is uh, Craig, and I get the privilege of teaching the fifth installment of our series through the Book of Songs. If you have a Bible, uh, please open it to Song of Songs, chapter 5, Song of Songs, chapter 5, and we are going to read from verse 2. If you need a copy of the Scriptures, do raise your hands, and our team of ushers will be delighted to loan you a copy of the Scriptures. Now, just as they're going through uh, the aisles, I want to tell you a story by way of introduction. The the book that we're going to look at in the passage is the most erotic text. Uh, Somebody at the front right here. that's it, we're still going. This is the most erotic text in the New Testament. So the blush cam will be in operation today. Seriously, um, this, this text, and you'll get the point a few verses in, leaves nothing to the imagination. Fortunately, it did, does something which I want to explain to you by way of a, of a story. It's the story of Harold Truman, who one day took his wife, President Truman, to address a group of farmers. And apparently Truman grew up on a farm, so he started his message by saying, I grew up on a farm. And I know, basically, that farming involves a lot of manure and manure and even more manure. Now, sitting next to Truman's wife was a great family friend of theirs, and she lent in to Mrs. Truman and said, Beth, can't you get him to substitute the word fertilizer for manure? That would be far more appropriate. To which Mrs. Truman apparently said, good Lord, do you know it's taken me 30 years to get him to say manure? (laughs) Now, my point with this, of course, is that, guys, you've got to take this from from the top. The button isn't changing. Okay? 
Now I got it. There we go. Page 675. So we are going to look at this. And I tell you that story because essentially what we have here is something where one word is substituted for another word that is less offensive, okay, or more offensive. It's called a euphemism. Through this text, we're talking about the moment of consummation of the marriage. Last week, Brad talked about chastity, how she was willing to wait for the right time with the right mate. Well, now we come to the consummation of the marriage. But of course, back then, just like today, it would have been really difficult to have talked about this openly and bluntly. So what they did is they used euphemisms. They substituted a less kind of controversial word for a more embarrassing word. It's called a euphemism, okay? And a euphemism is a mild or an indirect word or expression substituted for one considered to be too harsh or blunt when referring to something unpleasant or embarrassing, a euphemism. So as we go through this text from verse 2, there are euphemisms. I'm going to spend the first portion of the message, okay, explaining the euphemism to you. There won't be much imagination required. Blush cam is required, however. And then the second portion of the message, I'm actually going to unpack what this means. Okay, so we're going to dig in from chapter 5 and verse 2, but please note we start from verse 2, but the section actually begins in chapter 4 and verse 16. Okay, this is the, what uh, Tim LaHaye called the act of marriage that is being talked about here, and we're going to pick up from verse 2. This is what she says. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Now, this isn't supposed to be interpreted literally. It's a poem, okay? There are people who try to unpack this text literally. That is as wrong as unpacking this metaphorically. This is a poem, and we've got to dig a little deeper. So when she said, I slept, but my heart is awake, she is picturing here that moment leading up to consummation. Her heart is pounding in her chest, okay? Then we read, the beloved is knocking at the door. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. Now stop there. She's laying on bed, on the bed, her heart is pounding, and he is not knocking at the door, he is about to enter in, if you know what I'm saying, blush cam required. He uses some euphemisms for this. He talks about the head being dampened with the dew of the night. The head is a euphemism in the scripture for male genitalia. The dew of the night, okay, to talk about the male nocturnal emission. You do need a blush cam for this, okay? Uh, the male nocturnal emission is talked about in Deuteronomy 23, 10, and 11, and it is literally an accident of the night. It refers to what would happen to a soldier if they were on military duty. Being on military duty meant you were devoted to this, no time for any kind of nice activities with your spouse. But if the guy had a little bit of an issue and there was an accident of the night, there were certain things that he needed to do in order to make himself pure again. 
Okay, so you see what's going on here. There are euphemisms. One word has been inserted into the poem to explain what is really going on. Because back then, you wouldn't talk about stuff like this in a religious community. Am I hearing an amen to that? That's basically what happened. So what they would do is they would put it in a poem form. Why? Because they didn't want the Canaanite understanding of sexual intimacy to be the ones that the people of God would grow up with. They needed to talk about it so they talked about it in this way so the guy is supposedly knocking on the door his head is wet with the dew of the night he's ready to go the question is how is she feeling let's have a look at verse 3 I have taken off my robe must I put it on again I have washed my feet must I soil them again? Some people think that the man is speaking here, but it's likely to be the female. This is what she responds to this. I've taken off my robe. Do I need to put it back on? I've washed my feet. Do I need to make them dirty again? These are, again, euphemisms, terms that the Hebrew writers would use to refer to a status that is actually being changed in this moment. The robe that she refers to is actually her virginity. Now, that may seem strange to you, but have a look at this text. It's from a story in 2 Samuel where Tamar is actually raped by her brother. This is what we read here. So his servant, that's the king, I think it's Abner's servant, okay, put her, Tamar, out, of the bolted, out and bolted the door after her. She's just been raped. And the servant obviously stands by, sees this thing, kicks her out. She was wearing an ornate robe, for this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the ornate robe she was wearing. Why did she do that? It didn't apply to her anymore. This robe symbolized something. It symbolized her virginity that she was going to give to the person that God gave to her. But the king violated her. And so she went and put her hands on her head and went away weeping aloud as she went. The text then goes on to say she spent the rest of her life living as a desolate woman. This event destroyed her. She was violated, and as Brad said last week, no means no. So you have this idea of a robe. Do I need to put my robe back on? I'm ready for this. So what she's saying here, she recognizes that this is something important. Chastity was important. Saving herself was important. Her heart is beating in her chest. She realizes the significance of this moment. Oh, that young people would do the same today. She recognizes that once she gives herself away, she can never get her virginity back. And even though this is someone that God has given to her, she is now wrestling with the reality of what's about to transpire. The next part of the verse says, she, should I get my feet, uh, should I wash my feet? Do I need to get my feet dirty again? You need to understand the euphemism that's in play here. Washing your feet is another euphemism for intimacy between a man and a woman. Let me tell you a story. Second Samuel chapter 11 begins in verse 1 by saying, at the time when kings go off to war, David remained in Jerusalem. He couldn't sleep 
one night and he went out. You know the story if you've been brought up in church, to a balcony. He looks out on the balcony and who does he see? Bathsheba bathing. As the king, he did something he should not have done. He ordered his servants to bring the woman to her. They have intercourse. He finds out later that she is pregnant. David is now in trouble. What does he do? He comes up with a plan. Where is her husband? In battle. Remember what I just said about Deuteronomy chapter 23? When you're in battle, there are certain things as a soldier you don't do. David brings him home. Uriah comes into the palace, meets with David. And David says to him, Uriah, go home to your wife and wash your feet. David, um, Uriah didn't need to wash his feet because he would have washed his feet in order to enter the presence of the king. Uriah, the story goes on, leaves there and rather than goes home, he honors the vow that is required of him as a military personnel. He doesn't go home to his wife. He stays with the men around the gates. David finds out about it, calls Uriah to him and says, Uriah, why didn't you go home? Uriah then says, did you expect me to go and lay with my wife? Another euphemism. That shows us what it means to wash, my, wash your feet. It talks about consecrating the relationship, consummating it, being intimate. So you have the idea here then, they've waited until this moment, but the woman realizes that there is something profoundly significant going on here, and she's wrestling with this. Wrestling with this in the right way. Now, does she not want to be intimate with her spouse? Of course she does. Go back with me. Open your Bible again. Go back with me in uh, the book of Sol uh, Solomon to chapter 3. Have a look at the first few verses of chapter 3. This is what we read here. All night long on my bed, again the woman speaking, all night long on my bed, that word all night long is actually night after night. Night after night on my bed, I looked for the one my heart loves. Remember, this is still in that state of chastity that Brad was talking about. But God is drawing her together with her mate and she wants to be united with him. I looked for him, but I didn't find him. She is talking here about the pain of single chastity when you believe that God has brought someone into your life. So does she want to be intimate with her spouse? Of course she does. The verse goes on in verse five to talk about that phrase that Brad used last week. Do not arouse or awaken love before it is time. So of course she wants to be intimate with him. Of course she wants to consummate the marriage. But it wasn't the right time. But now it is the time her heart is beating, her mind is racing because she recognizes the significance of the moment. So what does she do? Look at verse four of chapter five. In verse four, this is basically what we read. In verse four, we read, my beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening and my heart began to pound for him. Four euphemisms in here. Flesh cam needed again. We're getting past this pretty quickly, honestly. Hand is a euphemism for male genitalia, okay? Latch opening is literally whole. You get the picture? Let's move on, okay? Heart. 
the heart here is used twice in this chapter, in these opening verses. It's used in the opening verses. The word heart there is literally heart, but in this verse, it's a different word. It means internal organs, inward parts, belly. Whenever this word is used of a woman, nearly always it's used to speak of the woman's womb. From birth I have relied on you. You have brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. Euphemisms here. Heart, womb. And then it began to pound. The word is literally to groan, to growl, to roar. You get the picture? Do I need to go into verse 5? No. This is the consummation of the marriage. You see in this, in this picture that they have waited, they've honored the, the guidelines that, that God has laid down. And there we read in verse 6 that she says that I, she opened for her beloved. And then we read, but my beloved had left, he was gone. She opened for him. That word opened means to open, but also to allow. There was consent here, and they come together. And these verses are written this way to show us something important. She has given up her virginity, something that she will never be able to undo. She has placed herself openly and fully into his hands. She has allowed herself to be intimately enjoyed with him. Friends, this is how the Bible views sex. This is it. And it's in here to train, to teach a younger generation of people what it means to be sexually intimate with another person. You give yourself. As Brad shared last week, you are enjoined, enveloped with them. So she gave herself to him. Now the question is, what happens next? This is where it gets really interesting, doesn't it? Look at this. She opened for my beloved, and then he was gone. Again, this is not literal, right? This is metaphorical. It's a poem. It's using a poetic expression to teach us something important. I want to suggest to you that what we have here is what we call a stereotype. It's a stereotype, and a stereotype is an oversimplified idea of a personal thing. We have a stereotypical reaction of a male here. Now, let me help you understand where I'm going with this. Picture a man who walks into a store, sees who he believes is the woman of his dreams. He is overjoyed. He is ecstatic. He goes home and he calls his mom and he says, Mom, I just met the woman of my dreams and I don't know what to do. And his mom says, look, it's simple. Buy her a bunch of flowers. On there, write a card, invite her to your place for a nice home-cooked meal. Works every time, she said. So that's what he did. The day after the date that evening, Mum calls the son. Tell me, how did it go? Mum, it was an absolute disaster. Why, asks Mum, did she, did she not show up? Oh no, she showed up all right, but she didn't just refuse to cook the meal. <laughs> Why do we laugh at that? Because it's a stereotype, right? The stereotype is males are chauvinists, 
who do not know our way around the kitchen. It's a stereotype. That's why we can laugh. We get it. You would get this back there too. She looked and he'd left. In other words, the deed is done, the marriage is consummated, and he rolls over and goes to sleep. You know what's going on here with this stereotype? It's designed to show us that males and females address and think and approach sex differently. She's given herself fully to him. The marriage is consummated, and she wants to talk. She wants to open up and discuss everything important, and he's snoring. It's a stereotype that is 3,000 years old and is as true today as it was back then. And you see, what we discover here is that this issue isn't addressing passion. Verse 6 isn't addressing passion. It's addressing the issue of what it means to be fully with someone, the issue of presence. You see, there is more to human love than drying your hair. You understand the point there, right? Go back to the hair analogy. Some of you guys are thinking, what does that mean for me? I'm bald. Well, it just runs, right? That's just the way that works. When it comes to experiencing eros without shame, we must grow together in the experience, but be realistic about the expectations. Eros without shame is not a climax, it's a process. That's what's going on here. Where we start is not where we end up. And what you discover through the rest of the book, if we were going to go through this verse by verse, is that's their experience. It gets better and better over time. But in order for that to happen, the expectation has to be talked through. And the experience needs to be worked through. Because men and the women address the issue in very different ways. Now when you listen to this, there are a number of questions probably that come up. And, and through the series, we've had some of those. So what I want to do is I just want to address those some of those questions. I mean, the book has, has spent four ch full chapters, right, getting up to this moment. The moment happens, and she's like, what happened? Where'd he go? So it kind of begs the question, doesn't it? Is it possible to keep Song of Solomon 1 through 4 kind of passion, that kind of thing alive for a lifetime? Is that possible? What does the Bible say about that? I think what the Bible encourages us to do is to be very realistic. Let me give you two scriptures, one from a female point of view, one from a male point of view, the female point of view. Let's go back to Genesis. God had called Abraham. Tells Abraham, this old man, that he was going to bless Abraham by making him a father of nations. Abraham it basically says, how on Earth, is this going to happen? God says, don't worry, it will happen. And then one day, Sarah overhears a conversation between Abraham and God where God says, look, Sarah's going to conceive and bear a son. She laughs. And then she says this in Genesis 18, verse 12. After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, you get the point? He's dropped, she's tightened. That's basically what's going on here. Am I now going to have this pleasure? The word pleasure here doesn't just talk about the pleasure of a baby. It talks about the pleasure of the entire experience. 
So what do we have here? We have modified expectations as age goes on. Sarah says, wait a minute, we're a little bit old for that, aren't we? So when it comes to this question of, can this kind of passion last a lifetime, we realize here, the more you dig into the text, it, it kind of asks us to modify our expectations as time goes on, especially from a female point of view, but from a man's point of view too. This is Solomon, right, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Remember, he's attributed to the wisdom in this book too. So then, Solomon writes, banish anxiety from your heart, cast off the troubles of your body, for youth and vigor are meaningless. Vigor here is the word blackness. It talks about the blackness of the dawn. It talks about manliness, okay, virility. The idea here is it kind of fades over time. So whether you look at this from a female perspective, whether you look at it from a male perspective, what you realize is that love changes. See, when it comes to human love, human love should never die. It should deepen. Human love should never die, it should deepen. I can't tell you how many people in my ministry I've talked to that something happens in life. A, a medical situation may come up and then their experience of eros changes as a result of a medical condition. Does your love die in that moment? No, it deepens. Some of the most beautiful people in the world are 80-year-old people. Have you noticed that? Why is it that when we come to pictures like this, or pictures of couples holding hands walking down the road, or a couple, an old couple hugging, young people find it gross. You get the middle age like me, and I think, what do I need to do to keep my love that alive when I'm their age? See, things happen in life, and our experience of intimacy may change. But the Bible says it doesn't die, it deepens. And for that, I take you back to the idea that I introduced in week number one, which is simply this. There are three words in the Bible, Greek words for love. Eros is one. It's that expression of sexual intimacy. But there are another two. Phileo is one. It's that deep friendship, that brotherly, that sisterly love where you can look at your spouse and you know them. You really know them. Then you have agape, this idea of unconditional love that you know that your spouse knows you, faults and failings and all, and they love you just the same. That's love. That's real love. So is it possible for the passion that some of you younger people that you may have now newly married to, to last a lifetime? Yeah, probably, but the reality is modify the expectation and recognize that sometimes when something may happen in life and the passion, physical passion through eros may seem to fade, your love doesn't die, it's supposed to deepen. But is this the message that Hollywood is giving us? Is this the message of love that the world has given us? The world is basically telling us, do whatever we need to do to fill that void of passion. Let me ask you, what happens when the passion is no longer there? I'll tell you what will happen because I've seen it in my own father. What happens will be that he, you will basically find yourself at the end of your life a lonely old person realizing that you pursued the wrong things. Being there with my dad as he's dying, 
And, and just having the ability to talk to him about this was a blessing, but the pain it brought to so many people was not. He lived his life pursuing eros when in fact he should have been living his life pursuing phileo and agape, a deepening love with one person that God had brought to him. But he couldn't do that. The question is, can we? So love is something that may change over time, but it deepens it doesn't die. The other question I'm often asked in situations like this is, look, since age does affect our sexual capability, what steps can we take to keep Eros alive and meaningful, even into latter life? We've got to get the expectation right, okay? But we have to get the experience of it right too. So what do we do to keep it alive in latter life when the reality is age does affect sexual capability? I think the first thing we need to do is broaden the definition. The idea that love as God sees it is simply what happens when a guy has dried his head, you following me? Isn't a biblical analogy of love. It is so small-minded, and God's vision is far broader than that. Hollywood narrows the script. God actually tears the script up and makes the expression and the experience even bigger. You want to keep Eros alive, broaden your definition to far more than what we read outside. There's far more to human love than we think. Don't allow Hollywood to write your script. Write your own. Experience love as a couple in the way that God intended it. And single people in here, wait because the best intimacy is when you have the ability to write a script with someone who will be by your side no matter what. Broaden your definition. Secondly, this is important, focus on what endures. It's really interesting, if you have a look at the text, we get to Songs chapter five, we get to verse nine, and then the narrator, you know there are kind of three people in this, in this play, in this poem, there's her, there's him, and then you've got this, this chorus, okay, this group of people. In verse nine, if you have a look at it, they say, where's your lover boy now then, lady? Where's he disappeared to? They're kind of taunting her. But it's taunting her to encourage her to focus on what truly counts. But I want you to note where she starts. Where she starts is not where she ends up, but look at where she starts. She responds in verse 10 by talking about how big his six-pack is, right? His physical attributes. He's handsome. When he looks at me, his eyes just melt me. We've got a, a Roland in our home. When Roland um, welcomes someone into our home, first thing he'll do is he'll go and show his manliness by going on outside, and he just does these backflips. He just stands there and backflips. And, and then he'll look at the guy and he say, can you do that? And then if the guy can do that, he says, have you got a six-pack? Seriously, this is what he says. Don't know where he gets it from because I ain't got a six-pack. But this idea of physical attraction, it's important to a guy. That's where she starts off. But the reality is, over time, this changes. And that's why I love what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 3. All too often we think that we keep love alive for the long term by focusing on the externals. And I'll get there in a minute. It is important 
But there's something the Bible says is even more important. It's the internals. Look at this. Peter writes this. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your husbands. Uh, remember, the, the Bible encourages husbands to submit to wives too. Mutual submission. Brass talked about that at length. So that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over with words by, their, by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornment, such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold and jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and acquired spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. Gene Getz says this, external beauty without internal beauty wears real thin, real fast. I think he's right. You want to keep your, life, your love alive for a lifetime? Recognize it's not just enough to work on the externals. You have to work on the internals. When was the last time you couples gave yourself a really good spiritual workout? How important is your spiritual life to your love life? The Bible seems to indicate it's really, really important. And yet, all too often, we think that it's the externals that actually drive love for a lifetime. Guys, there will come a time when your hair may fade, your body may weaken, and everything may loosen. What then? The kind of love that lasts a lifetime is the type of love that is nurtured and expressed from the inside out. We don't put so much emphasis on that today, but the reality is in a relationship, you keep love alive when your spouse is more like Jesus tomorrow than they were today. And I'll tell you what, there's nothing as exciting in a marriage than that. Focus on what endures. And that is, who are you becoming? What is God doing in your heart? How are you different today than you were yesterday? Thirdly here, and this needs saying, you want to keep your love alive for a, life, alive for a lifetime? Then keep yourself alive for a lifetime. Your health is important to this. Friday is a victory in my day. Sometimes the weeks have been so exhausting that I would like nothing more than to just chill out. Well, my contact lenses, sometimes I'm just like, I can't be bothered to put those in, it's Friday. Or it's Friday, I've showered all week. Why do I need to do that on a Friday? I'm just gonna chill out today. But Friday is a victory in my day. In order to keep ourself, our love alive, I need to keep myself alive. I need to work on myself. Now, my wife likes running ultramarathons, 100 milers. That will kill me. That's not my thing. But the idea that my love life is actually going to stay alive for a lifetime if I actually let myself go is also wrong. And we get into so many issues of this, don't we? Body image and, and other kinds of things. But the reality is if we want to keep our love alive, not only do we need to broaden our definition and focus on what truly matters, but we actually need to make sure that we work on ourselves, that we keep ourselves alive. Having heard all of this and with such a mixed audience like this, I'm pretty sure that some of you need a word of hope right now. Maybe you're in here and you're newly married and you can resonate with the woman in the text. The first time wasn't a memory that you want to last a lifetime. You may remember your first kiss, but you do hope another experience comes along to replace that one. 
Some of you may well be into marriage five, six, seven years, and research suggests that couples wait six years in a marriage before they acknowledge that they're unhappy. Unfortunately, what that, the problem with that is, most couples that get divorced do it in the seventh year. We wait too long before we acknowledge that there's something wrong. And maybe you're listening to this and you're thinking, my love isn't, isn't like that. Oh, okay, things run fine in the bedroom, but outside of that, I'm longing for something that he just doesn't see. Maybe you're here, and, and there have been medical issues that you've had. And your experience of Eros isn't what it once was, and you're struggling with that. I want to give you a word of hope, and it's a word of hope that comes from the text directly, but in order to get there, I want you to notice these words of Jesus. Very truly, Jesus says, I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Often we get to that place of disappointment in our relationship because we have an expectation that has been unmet. And often for far too long, we try and work so hard to change the other person so that our expectations will be met. It, it never works. I think what Jesus is telling us here is, let the expectation go. Let it, let it come to the, my feet. Let it stay there. Let that dream die. But why? In order for a new dream to be born. In order for new life to come. In order for new intimacy to work. Let this thing go. Let me. And I say that as background because in verse 6, where there has been this moment of consummation, and you've got this kind of stereotypical response from the, from the husband, we read this in the second part of that verse. My heart sank at his departure. Significant here are those words, heart sank. The heart here refers to the heart, not the womb. She's too young for that. But this word sank means expired. It's the word that you would use if someone were to have passed from this world and entered into the next. In a Hebrew context, it refers often to the idea of the departed soul going into Hades, into that waiting place. Waiting for what? Waiting for something else to happen. One commentator by the name of Garrett refers to this phrase like this. The exploration of the woman may reflect the theme that is common in the stories of the heroic quest. The heroic quest, the woman is the hero in this story because she's the one disappointed and yet she is the one who has the courage to let the dream go, fight the guards in the city and the, the evil of the night in order to find what she wants. She's bold. Remember what we said a number of weeks ago? Commitment is staying together for the sake of the kids. Courage is, I'm going to push through this no matter what. She's the hero. Namely, the hero's death and resurrection. A descent into Hades is a decisive break with the old self, and the return is a birth to the new self, of the new self. Thus, the words may imply a motive of transformation. The song sends the protagonist, the woman, on a heroic quest where she faces harrowing dangers. She leaves her security behind and exposes herself to danger and pain for the sake of attaining her beloved. You know, one of the most difficult things in a marriage relationship is when you've been hurt and disappointed, sometimes over and over again, the most 
difficult and yet the most courageous thing to do is to let the expectation and the pain drop at the feet of Jesus and dare to believe again. And this is where the woman is in this part of the song. And the rest of the book tells us that she finds what she wants. And I want to challenge you, those of you who are here, and you may be disappointed. Do you have that kind of courage? Do you have that kind of faith in that kind of God who can do abundantly more than we ask, think, or even imagine? Do you have the courage not to settle for commitment, but actually to settle for an experience of love that God can transform? If you do, as we go to God in prayer, what I want to encourage you to do is to just leave any disappointment you have on the other side, any hopes you have at the feet of Jesus and say, Jesus, I'm willing to play my part. I'm willing to work on becoming the type of child of God that you want me to become. And I'm willing to allow you to work on my spouse in the same way. Make me that 1 Peter 3 woman that wins. My husband, through what you're doing in me, help me be that 1 Peter 3 type guy who wins my spouse because of what you're doing in me. That, my friends, is the way to keep love alive for a lifetime. But I recognize, too, that sometimes prayer isn't enough. Sometimes we can pray about something until we've prayed about something and we can't pray anymore. Sometimes there needs to be action. And for some of you here, you recognize that's where we're at. We need to do something. It's not as if our marriage is bad. We just need a little bit more. Well, if that's you, that's why we're doing this restoring the gift a 10-week program that just takes couples through a process to restore the intimacy, the joy, the experience of love as God intends it to be. It starts next a week on Monday. You can find out more information at the information desk. You can also sign up online. Some of you need to do something with this, and maybe that's the next step, but all of it begins by going to God in prayer. So let's do that, shall we? Let's bow our heads. Let's go to God in prayer. In this moment, maybe the Holy Spirit has put a a hook in you at a certain point and you haven't been able to get away from it. Maybe this entire topic has been difficult for you because you just don't want to go there. Wherever you're at, just give this to God in prayer. Just allow that seed to fall to the ground. You may be single. And the struggle of singleness is so intense, just like the woman in chapter three. Leave the seed of hope at the feet of Jesus. Heavenly Father, as we respond to the work of your spirit in our own hearts, I just pray that what you have done in us and through us during our time together today that we would have the courage to leave our expectations, our pain, our hopes, our dreams at your feet. And Father, I just pray that you would take these up and that you would just transform them. Whether as a single seed, may there be 
a flourishing tree. For those of us who need transformation and need transformation now, Father, I also pray that we would have the courage to take that step and do something. And God, I pray that as a result of your work in us, that our marriages would be transformed. And I pray that at the end of our lives, we would be found as we are right now, as we were on that wedding day, holding hands before you, cherishing the life that you had before us. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come, would seal what you're doing until Jesus comes again. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. As we always say here, if this has provoked issues that you would like prayer over, you can always come to the front. We have a team of people that would love to pray for you. At the same time, you can go out of the door if it's more personal than that. You go out of the door just off to our right, there is a prayer room, and we would be glad to pray for you there. At the same time, some of you may realize that, you know what, our marriage is okay, but we really do need a little bit of work on this. I encourage you to go and sign up for Restoring the Gift either at the Information Center or online. But friends and family, stand up together. Let's just pray a prayer a blessing as we depart. Friends and family of Central, as you go from here, may you find yourself at the end of this week more in love with Jesus and with your spouse than you are right now. And may God continue to do that inner work that is the hard work of this life so that you would be transformed and be a blessing to all you meet. Go in grace, go in peace. God bless you. Have a great week. Amen.